Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're going to start a brand new series of studies tonight in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. I'm calling uh, the series Devoted because um, that is the model. That's what we're looking at. If you need a Bible, by the way, get the attention of one of the ushers. If you have your Bible, you can open it. I'm going to give you two places to open to tonight. Uh, The first is Galatians chapter 1, and the other is Philippians chapter 3. So we're not actually in the book of Acts yet, um, but you'll understand the context uh, as we set things up. I actually looked up the word devoted in the dictionary uh, just so that we could set our minds in the right direction, and there was three definitions in Oxford's dictionary for the word, and I liked all three of them, so I just want to tell you what it means. Number one, devoted means uh, very loving and loyal, to be very loving and loyal towards something. Number two is to be given over to the display, study, or discussion of. And I love that, you know, to be given over. You've given your lives to the display, study, or discussion of. And then number three is to give all or a large part of one's time or resources to a person, activity, or a cause. And obviously, as we discuss being devoted, the object of our devotion is none other than uh, God and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, The activity that we want to give ourselves to in devotion is to pursue his call upon our lives and his reason that he gives to us. And then uh, obviously the cause is his call over us. And so my prayer is that over these next months as we go through this, however long that it takes, is that God would enlighten us, that he'd encourage us, that he would speak to us, and that he would adjust us as necessary, uh, that our lives would be lived in the right direction. So uh, I'm going to begin in Galatians chapter 1. I want to read just a couple of verses there. Then I want to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and read the body of our text for uh, our introduction study tonight, and then we'll pray and get into the message. So we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 13. I'm going to read to verse 17, then I'm going to skip down um, to verse 22 just for time's sake. You won't lose any context, I promise, in it, but uh, let's read it. It says this, and this is Paul the Apostle speaking. He says, For you have heard of my conversation or my lifestyle in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, But I went into Arabia and then returned again into Damascus. And then, uh, if you would, again down in verse 22. It says, And I was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which he once destroyed, and they glorified God in me. And now, if you would just flip over to Philippians chapter 3, and I want to begin in verse 4 and read uh, an autobiographical testimony that Paul gave concerning himself. 
He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, that is in myself or my own effort or my own person, if any other man thinks that he has whereof that he might trust in the flesh, or his strength or his ability or his person, he says, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. You guys know what that is, right? That I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect or perfected, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend or obtain that for which I am apprehended or called of Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not count myself to have apprehended, arrived, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15, the application. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, this timeless truth. And even as we read it, Lord, we sense the power of its life coursing through us. And we ask tonight, Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit to hear what you want to speak to us, to understand the context and the application of what this means for our lives. So would you be here in this place? We thank you, Lord, for your ability and your willingness to meet us where we are, and we ask it in Jesus' name. The Westminster Catechism, which was a handbook for Christian education and discipleship, that was written way back in the mid-1600s by a group of Scottish and English theologians who were passionate about raising people up in the Lord and bringing unity among the churches. It begins with these words, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I'm going to read it again. To glorify God, or the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then the rest of the entire work centers around bringing people into that place where their lives exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if that's true, those opening words of that catechism, if what those men, those theologians put forward is actually the case, then that implies to you and I that everything that exists within the created universe exists for that end. Because we know that time, space, and matter, everything that we understand, 
that it was created for man to dwell in. We also know, if that's true, that all events of world history are unfolding toward that end, that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it also implies that every event that happens in individual lives is also drawing us toward the perfection of that experience. That is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, that's a very simple statement and it's easy to say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But it is an immensely complicated and complex process (laughs) and concept. And here's why. Because when you're talking about a relationship between God and man, You're talking about a God who is infinitely huge and man who is extremely small. When you read the scriptures and it talks about the size of God, it says that he measures the universe using the span of his hand. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that that the universe goes from the end of one pinky to the end of one, but that he, it's so small to him that he can just go like, oh, that's one, two, three. Yeah, that's about three and a half spans. That's big. Whereas to you and I, we have no means of accurately measuring the universe because it's way too big for us to do. We read of God, not just his size, but his, his being, his character, his person. And when you read of him in the scriptures, it says that his ways are as high as the heavens above our ways and that they're past finding out. Meaning that even if you were going to try to figure out God in some proportion, You wouldn't be able to do it because he's just way too big. You can't do it. Job would say, after describing the glory of God and the greatness of God and the fullness of what he could experience, he would say, yeah, but these are just the mere edges of his ways. In other words, no matter how deep we dig, we can only uncover so much of God because he's just that big. And yet we are so small. David would say in the Psalms, as he was looking up at the heavens, he would say, what is man that you're mindful of us? When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, all that you've made, what is man that you're mindful? You're so big, we're so small. So to bring us into that place where we have lives that glorify God and that can enjoy him, that's a massive span that needs to be bridged between the size of God and the size of man. It's also complex because we humans, we are known fully by God, whereas God is completely unknown by us. The Bible says that all things are naked and open before the eyes of whom we have to do. The Bible says that he formed us in the mother's womb and that his thoughts towards us are more in number than the sand that's on the seashore. David would say that you have searched me and known me, that you know me thoroughly through and through. You know my thoughts before I think them and where they come from. And that's both comforting and scary. But yet we come into this world as a blank slate and we know nothing of God. We are fully known and yet he is completely unknown. And so something must bring us close. Even people that know God, as you search them out in the scriptures, eventually they come to a place where they say, God, I thought I knew you, but I don't even know you. Another reason why it's so complex is because God is perfect, but man is fallen. God is holy and he dwells in unapproachable light. And you and I, we are fallen, we're broken, we're separated from God in sin. 
And so we're born so far from a place where we can glorify God or enjoy Him that something must be done to bridge that gap that's between us. And then fourthly, it's complicated because both man and God, we actually have something in common, are both personal and volitional. Personal meaning that we each have individual unique personalities and volitional just means that we have the ability to make choices in a free will. And when you think about that, that God is a person, he doesn't change, and that we are individuals different from one another and certainly unique and known by God, and yet we have a will and a choice, and God doesn't force us ever to move from the place where we are to another place, even if that place is closer to him. And that makes it extremely complex, even though it's a very simple statement that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, the work of moving man from the place he is when he's born to the place where he's completely devoted to God, which is the purpose for which we've been created, is a massive and a complex work. And thankfully, we have a Bible full of examples of people that have moved and shifted and come into that place where they've realized that purpose And they've lived lives ultimately that are devoted to God because they serve for us as examples. And thus tonight we start a study in the life and the teaching of the Apostle Paul who both made that journey himself and then also dedicated his life to helping other people find that same place to find the devoted life. So over these next months as we go through the life of Paul primarily in the book of Acts, What I'm going to do is I'm going to take you on a journey through the seven C's of the devoted life. Not S-E-A-S, but C, the letter C. Because there are seven segments of the devoted life that we see in the Apostle Paul in his experience, but that also are universally applied to every one of us that are called to that same end. So let me tell you what they are right now, uh, and they'll go up so that you can write them down as you see them on the screen, okay? The number one C, the first C, and we're going to go through this, uh, not, not all tonight, obviously, but the first C is context, and you can write that down. It's context or the framework. And the idea behind that is that there's a story that you have that brings you to a place where you come to meet with God. And there's also a context in God's story wherein he's provided a way for you to get there. And so any devoted life begins with a context. There's a story or there's a framework. And we're going to see this in Acts chapters 1 through 5 which we will go through quickly because we're going to move along and get to Paul's story, which begins in chapter 9. But chapters 1 through 5 give us God's context and the place that he's provided for man to meet with him. We're also going to see the context of Paul's story, that he had a background, and we read it in Galatians 1 tonight, that he's able to say that God called me from the womb meaning that my story doesn't start at the moment of my salvation. My story actually starts at the moment of my birth or at the moment of my conception, that it was at that time that God separated me and called me. That's where my context begins, and all of us have that context. The second C is conversion, 
Acts chapters 6 through 9 highlight for us the events that led to the conversion of the Apostle Paul. That is the moment when he placed his faith in Jesus Christ and his walk with God began as he received the good news of the gospel for and within himself. The third C that we'll go through is cultivation. And we'll see it in Acts chapters 9 through 12 as we see God preparing Paul. We see God forging in him a character and a set of gifts and a calling and a passion and a heart after his own. In the image of Christ, it's being worked into him in that season of preparation that nobody can avoid, pass over, or skip. And so Paul will be prepared, and we'll see it in 9 through 12. The fourth C is calling. And we'll see it in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is then called by God unto a specific work, to a specific function, a place, something he gives him to do. The fifth C is continuation. And we'll see it in Acts chapter 13, all the way through the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, where Paul runs now the race. He runs the course that God has mapped out for him. He does the work that God has carved out for him to do. And we see the growth, the development, the fruitfulness, the challenges, all the things that happen in his life along the way as he both grows himself and also grows in his usefulness and his fruitfulness as he lives for other people as well. And then the sixth C is culmination. And we'll see that in 2 Timothy where Paul basically hands the baton to the person that he discipled. He gives a charge, just like David did to Solomon. Paul will hand the baton to Timothy. And 2 Timothy is the culmination where he says, this is what I've done, and this is what you're to do now, as we, in a sense, receive our marching orders from Paul there. And then finally, the seventh C is Paul's crown. And those are his letters. The lasting legacy of what his life's work represented, what will be his crown in all of eternity is what's been left behind the pages of scripture, the enduring, the lasting fruit, as Jesus said, that we would bear much fruit and fruit that remains. We'll see the crown of Paul in his letters at the end. Now, here's the purpose of our journey through the seven seas, if you will. It's to help you and I see S-E-E, through the C's, the letter C, what it means and what it looks like and why it's worth it to live the devoted life. Now, this week, as we introduce the series and prepare our hearts to really uh, let God work in them, what I want to do is I want to answer one singular question that maybe you're thinking cognitively. I know you're at least thinking it subconsciously, and that is this. Why should I? Okay, I like Paul. I like the New Testament but why should I live a life that is supremely devoted to God? Why should God be the chief object of my affection and my discussion and my thinking and my energy and my time and my direction and my meditation? Why should God have that place of highest place or devotion within my own heart? Because I understand that there are some people that are supposed to live in that space but that's not for everyone to live in that space. If you're a monk, you should be devoted to God. If you're a priest or a pastor, you should be devoted to God. But I'm not. I'm a business person. I'm a teacher. I'm a working mother. So why should I, why should every one of us 
care about what it means to live a life completely devoted to God. And so what I want to do is I want to use the text in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 15, to make the case that yes, the devoted life is for everyone. And I want to tell you why you should be extremely excited about moving in this direction. Now, we already know that this segment of scripture, it's an autobiographical sketch that Paul gives concerning where he came from and where he ultimately ended up. It's a shorthand summary of his story, but it answers the question of why a devoted life is a worthwhile pursuit. And so I want to give you out of this passage five truths, and they'll go up on the screen one by one so you can write them down, that were experienced by Paul, and then he testified of those things that are true for everyone who lives a devoted life, and it will answer the question in our hearts firmly and forever why we should live a life that's devoted to God. And so I'll jump right in. I'm going to give you number one, and you can write it down, and that is this, is that purpose. Here's the first reason why you should live a devoted life. It's because purpose informs function. Okay, let me define those terms really quick. Your purpose is your why. It's what drives you. It's what motivates you. It's what gets you up and gets you going. It's what gets you excited. It's your why. Your function is your what. And that is what you do every day with your energy, with your time, with your mind, with your life. And every single person, no matter who they are, has both purpose and function. Everyone has a why and everyone has a what, okay? Including the Apostle Paul. And what he testifies to us of his own life in the scriptures is that before he had a life that was fully devoted to God, prior to the place where he willingly gave himself to the, to the Lord who died for him and paid for him, prior to that time, he had a purpose and a function, but those things were out of harmony with what purpose and function is supposed to be. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and my purpose is something other than that, then my purpose is misdirected. And if my purpose is off center of what I've been created for, then my function can't be in line with my purpose. And the result is that there's an anxiety, a frustration, and a lack of peace within my life. And Paul testifies to us in it, of his life prior to knowing Jesus that that's exactly what was going on in him. He tells us in Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, the text that we read at the beginning of our study, he says that he profited much in the Jews' religion. He tells us there both his purpose and his function. Prior to his coming to Christ, he tells us that his purpose, what he lived for, was his own profit. He said, I profited much in the Jews' religion. What I could achieve, what I could obtain, what I could gain from it. That's what drove Paul every day. And that's what he did. It's what he lived for. And in his purpose, he was obtaining the things that he was chasing after. The result of his function and his action, what he was doing, he was getting it. So how did Paul profit in the Jews' religion? First of all, he had a sense of self-worth. He tells us in Philippians 3, he says that I had a righteousness from the law. I was considered blameless. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was born in the, tri tri uh, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I had every honor that could come in the realm of humanity. 
I was profiting much in it. Not only did he have human honor or self-worth, but he had the human honor of it. And certainly he had the human wealth that comes from being in prominent positions in such circles. And he says out of his own mouth, he says, I profited much in the Jews' religion. That was my purpose. And my function, Paul would say, is that I did whatever I had to do to thrive within that space, even unto the persecuting of the church. That's what he says in Philippians 3, verse 6. He says that persecuting the church, he was zealous. In Galatians, he said that he wasted the church beyond measure, meaning that you couldn't even begin to list all of the things that Paul did to try to harm the church because harming the church meant elevating his purpose. And so he did it. If I have to kill you, I'm going to do it because I'm driven. It's my purpose. And that's what I'm going to live for. Now, listen, Paul would say out of his own mouth that prior to being devoted fully to Christ, that his purpose was wrong. And because his purpose was wrong, He was frustrated in his function. He was doing everything he thought he was supposed to do, but yet he was frustrated in that place and he had no peace within that place. When Paul finally gets knocked off of his high horse, which we'll see it happen in Acts chapter 9, Jesus confronts Paul directly. And and Paul knows that it's Jesus. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says to Paul these profound words. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Did you hear that? He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what the goads were? The goads were the the, the, the spikes, the sharp spikes that you would put behind a stubborn ox or mule to get it to go in the direction you wanted it to go. And if it wanted to go its own way, you would kind of like kick the goads a little bit and it would, it would, it would, you know that feeling when you're trying to sleep at night, you know, and you can't, and there's something and everything seems like it should be right. And you're going in the direction that everyone told you you're supposed to go your whole life. And you're, you're doing everything that you thought you were supposed to do with your life, but you're frustrated. It's the goads. And Jesus was able to look at Paul and say, you don't even have to tell me, I know you're frustrated. I know that you have no peace. I know that you can't sleep. I know that when you lay your head on the pillow at night, as high as you think you are on the scale of righteousness and religion, you know that you know nothing. And you can't answer Jesus when he says that he was frustrated. It means that you're making tons of money, but yet you're not satisfied and you know something's not right. It means that you're hitting your goals, you're crushing your goals, but you can't sleep at night. It means that you have everything that you ever wanted in life, and yet you realize deeply inside, though everyone looks and says they wish they were you, you know that you're not happy in and of yourself. That's what it means to be frustrated within your purpose. Here's why. Because if your purpose is wrong, then your function cannot possibly be right. Well, what happened for Paul is that he found the right purpose. When he met Jesus, when he yielded his life to him, when he made the decision that he wanted to live fully devoted to God and he devoted his life to Christ, it cost him the unraveling of everything that he had known previously, but it began something within him where his purpose and his function came into alignment. Notice what he says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. Watch this. He says, but what things were gain to me before? 
In other words, if you were to say to Paul, while he was devoted to the religion of the Jews, apart from Christ, if you were to say, hey, tell me all the good things in your life, he would list off thing after thing. Man, I've got this honor and this degree and this position and this seat and this recognition and this chair, and I've been given authority by the rabbis, and, and I've got so much money, and I live in a great house, and I have an excellent job, and a perfect reputation. Paul says, all of those things that before I considered gain. I have a huge house and a garage full of cars, and my bank account is overflowing. It's exploding. I have the best clothes. I have a perfect body. I have a wonderful family. My kids are all thriving, and they're doing well. He says, everything that was considered gain to me prior to my being fully devoted to Christ. He said, what I have now, I consider all of those things as loss. Do you know what loss means? Loss means what you write off at the end of the year as this was a loss. It's in the red. Meaning that when I compare what I have now in Jesus with what I had then, though I lost all of it, he says that was all like in the red. It was all waste. He says more than that, it was dung. It was more than just like, I have it, but I got to still pay for it. He says, it was poop, essentially. He says, it was nothing. He says, all of it was gone. He says, why? Verse nine, here it is. Here's Paul's purpose. You ready for it? He says that I might be found in him. He says, I found it. I found the purpose, the chief end, that for which I've been made. He says, and it wasn't in the Jews' religion or in the money that I made or the honor that I had or the degrees or the success or the legacy. It was in nothing. He said, I've been found in him. And he says, when I found that, I realized that I have stumbled onto or been called into or been chosen for or came face to face with the very reason and existence that I was made, that humanity was made. And as soon as I tasted that for the first time, everything else just flushed away. Yeah, I don't want any of it. It's gone. My purpose was changed. And now, Paul would say, testifying of his own life, he would say, now my purpose informs my function and my function serves my purpose and they're in line with each other. I'm living for the right things. Therefore, I'm giving myself to the right things. And the result is that I have a joy and a peace that I never had in everything that I lived for previously and before this. That's what devotion to Christ does. My wife, I love her testimony. It's, it's so unique. You don't hear too often. You know, usually the testimony is that, you know, like I was strung out on drugs and, you know, my life was a mess and my dad beat me and, you know, all this stuff and then Jesus saved me. And, and, and that, that's a beautiful testimony. But hers is different because she had a great life. She had a really, really solid family she always had kind of a peaceful disposition. She always had friends. She always ha had good grades. She always had, she had me as a boyfriend. I mean, she had everything that you could want. I'm just joking. I don't know how, I married up. I married way up, you know. <laughs> but, 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 but I remember, I remember that she, would, she was drawn to something more. That there was this emptiness that she could sense, that she could feel. And she didn't understand it herself because she was thankful for everything that she had, but she knew that something was missing in her life. And when she discovered what it was as a first-year student at Potsdam School upstate, she came home after one semester and she said, we have to talk. 
And she said, we, you either have to know Jesus or we have no future. I said, who did you meet and how did you come up with this excuse? I mean, this is what? And she said, it isn't that I don't love you. She said, because I do. And she says, it's the hardest conversation I've ever had. She said, but I found Jesus and he is life. And if you don't know him, then we would be building off of different blueprints and it won't work. And my word to her exactly was that I will never be your Ned Flanders. That's what I said. You don't know who Ned Flanders is, but I was saying, I'm never going to do that. I'm not going that way. And that night we broke up and I could not understand ever. The check engine light went on. Is how do you give up? And, and not that I'm that great, but we had a really good relationship. <laughs> but how do you give up? It wasn't just me, it was everything. How do you give up everything for something that you can't see, that you're grabbing a hold of by faith? See, when Jesus becomes the devotion. When he comes into the life, the purpose changes, the function changes, everything changes. And that's what happened to her. And thus, a joy-filled, peace-filled life is found nowhere other than a life that is fully devoted to Christ. Not only because purpose informs function, but also when you're living in devotion, this is number two, his presence outvalues all possessions. Listen, Paul already told us that he profited much in every way. He already told us that he counted everything that he had before as rubbish, debt, and dung. And you ask the question, what did he trade it all for? Did he trade it for another religion? Did he just shift gears and say, well, I was a Jew, now I'm a Christian. So I changed all my bumper stickers and I got all new t-shirts and I changed all the presets on my radio dial. And now I serve Christianity. No, 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 no. He doesn't say that. He didn't change for another religion. He tells us what he traded it for in verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He had previously said in verse 9 that I might be found in him. Do you know what that speaks of? It speaks of the presence of Jesus in his life in a moment-by-moment -moment basis. That he became acquainted with the person of God, the presence of God in his life to such a degree that to have that relationship and to have that fellowship and communion with him in a moment-by-moment -moment basis was worth giving up anything else that he could have, anything that he could give up and give away and move out of his life so that more of Jesus could move into his life. He said, that's a good deal. I'm going to do it. I'll move it out. Because there's nothing more valuable to me than to be found in him. And even if it costs suffering as these things are ripped out of my life, if it means it's going to be replaced with more of his presence, then I'm there. Just sign the dotted line. I want more of Jesus. Because to be fully devoted to him, means that I'm going to receive more of him and know more of him. Do you realize that, that there is more to the presence of Jesus than just him physically or even ethereally, spiritually being near you? I mean, have you ever read the Gospels? I mean, read what happens. And we just read it because it's like a historical account, right? But here's Jesus. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. And he looks out and he sees James and John, these two young men on a boat with their father running a family business. And he says, hey, he says, come follow me. And they're like, oh, oh. And they go. They get out of the boat and they go. And then it, the story moves on. And we're just like, yeah, that happened. But picture the scene. 
I mean, you're in the middle of your work day. Put yourself there. You will work today, okay? You work today, and for those of you that aren't bosses, and you actually work for someone, and all of a sudden, this guy, you don't know who he is, but he's got a beard and a robe, but there's something about him that is so powerful that he looks at you, and he says, hey, come follow me, and you're like, hey, all right, done. You take off your apron. You're like, I'm finished. I can't go back. Here's even more. Your boss goes, yeah, you go. You better go. I mean, think about it. I, my, my son works for me. If some dude came while we're working, I need him. Okay, if some dude came and said, hey, come follow me, and my son's like, I got to go, Dad, I'd be like, no, no, you don't. <laughs> you're, not, you're going nowhere. You can go later. You make arrangements. You put in two weeks. You do something. You do not just go. But not only do they just go, but their dad is like, yeah, you go. What was it? There was something about Jesus way more powerful than just the words that came out of his mouth. It was his presence. What was it when Jesus would apprehend and meet with this woman who'd been with so many men and was steeped in this lifestyle and was stuck in it to the point where she was so ashamed that she came to the well at high noon? And when Jesus would come and he would just have this little interaction and he would say to her these words, he would say, I that speak to you am he. And in one moment, this woman who came with this water pot, this empty jar, which represents the empty life. And she came to have it filled one more time. She drops it on the ground. She don't even need this anymore. I don't need this thing that whatever it was, I don't need it anymore. She drops it on the ground. She runs back to the village. She forsakes her whole life. She confesses everything that she ever did and tells everyone in the village that she just met Jesus. There was something more going on there than Jesus just saying, I that speak to you am he. It was his presence. What was it when Jesus walked under the tree and he looked up and there was a man who was hated by everyone who was as rich as anyone could ever be? And he looked down at Jesus and Jesus looked up at him and he said, Zacchaeus, he knows my name. He says, I'm going to dine at your house today. Come down. I have to, I've got to eat with you today. And Jesus goes to this man's house, accepting him as he was before he had repented of any sin at all. And Jesus comes into his life, into his presence. And by the end of the encounter, one meal with Jesus, Zacchaeus says, I repent of every sin. If I've ever taken anything by fraud, I restore it fourfold and I give now half of my goods to feed the poor. Now we read that in the Bible. We go, yeah, that's what happened. Think about it. Bill Gates. Right? That's Zacchaeus. That's the presence of Jesus. And see, when you live a life that's devoted to God, his presence is what's promised. You're not signing up for a religion. You're not signing up to get a new book and a new t-shirt and cut your hair a certain way and have an appearance at church and try to put on a show that you're something that you're not. You're invited into the very presence of God, washed and purified by his own blood, filled and sealed with his Holy Spirit. With the promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you, that he's with you always, even to the end of the age. It's his presence. And he promises, he says, them that draw near to me, I will draw near to them. They that seek me early will find me, and I am a rewarder of those that diligently seek me. And to know his presence is to know life in a way where you would give up anything to have it. And that is why Paul would say it is worthy to live the devoted life. Not only, not only because his presence outvalues all possessions, but thirdly, because when you're living in devotion, his power outpours 
performs your best effort. Did you hear what Paul said in verse 10? We already read it. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Part of the deal that comes with a life devoted to him and walking in his presence is that you experience in your life what Paul calls here resurrection power. Now, we're going to talk more about this in future studies when we come into the context of Paul's uh, salvation and in the context of God's platform for which salvation can happen. But resurrection power describes a very unique and otherworldly power. And the difference between resurrection power and any other power is that resurrection power defeats human government and natural law. You see, Jesus was sentenced to die by human government. It was Pilate, it was the Jews, it was the Romans, it was humanity that said, we will not have this man rule over us. And Jesus was sentenced to die in the court of humanity. But he overruled that sentence when he rose from the dead. Jesus was sentenced by the laws of science and natural laws to stay dead once he was dead, because that's what science says. Science says you don't have a pulse, you can't breathe, you're dead. But resurrection power is stronger than the laws of science. So when a life, a human life, possesses resurrection power, you possess a power that triumphs over the laws of human government and natural law. It's resurrection power. Okay, and it is the possession and the birthright of all of those that are devoted to God. Let me give you some examples of it in the Bible. Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side. They said, no, no, Lord, we're the experts here. We know, we know these seas, we know these waters. We just want to make it to the end of our shift so we can punch the time clock because it ain't happening today. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll cast the net. Whew. What happened? It says that the catch of fish was so large that the net break and they had to call the other boat over to receive the catch of fish because it was so much. That's resurrection power. Oh, you think you know? Oh, these things don't just happen. Money doesn't just show up. We can't just, oh, you think you know? You don't know resurrection power. Lord, should we pay taxes? This is ridiculous. Do you see what they're doing with our tax money? Jesus said, hey, Peter, let me explain something to you. You are a citizen of a higher kingdom and the citizens of a country pay taxes but the children of the kingdom are free. He says, nevertheless, calm down. You're going to pay your taxes, but go, go, go catch a fish. And the first fish you catch, open its mouth and see what's inside. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, when you go to Chuck E. Cheese and the egg little kind of thing comes down and you open it up, right? And you're like, what's in? Oh, catch a fish, open the mouth. He opens the mouth, what's in it? The exact amount that Peter needs to pay the tax bill for both Jesus and Peter. That's resurrection power. It's God providing supernaturally in a supernatural way. Lord, if that's you, bid me to come out and walk on the water with you. Come on. Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water. He did what was scientifically impossible to do because Jesus had called him to do it and put him in the place where he had to. And he found that when he needed it, the power was there to walk through something that otherwise would have been impossible. It's resurrection power. In the Old Testament, we see Joshua and he's fighting the Lord's battles and it's intense and it's long and he's tired. 
And he doesn't say, Lord, let this end so we can rest. He said, Lord, let the sun stand still so that we can finish what we started today. And it says it was the first and only time that the Lord hearkened to a voice of a man. And the sun stood still in its place until Joshua and the men defeated the enemies and they moved into the possession that God had for them. He created supernatural time that otherwise would. It's resurrection power. And it's what happens in the life of God's people. Not every minute wish it did. But when we need it, it is there. And Paul said, I would trade nothing but to have that power in my life. I have seen it in my life so many times over the years. I, I was having a conversation with Rocky. We just get a ton of time these days to just talk and chat and share. And it's the best one. It's almost like, because we're both introverts, you know, so we, a lot of the time is passed just with us doing our, our thing. But every now and again, it's almost like the Lord just kind of throws a little wind at us and we just start conversing about something. And we were talking not long ago uh, really about, um, I mean, I think he asked me something like, it was something along the lines of like, how do you know all this? How can you do all this stuff? You know, and, and so I was kind of telling him like where we started. And when Georgia and I first got married, we were like, when I say a hot mess, like we were idiots, like literal idiots. We were little kids in big adult clothes. And I can't believe anybody let us get married. We knew nothing about life. And we just started like dancing on minefields. We're like, yeah, let's just do this. And, and, and like things just happen. But we were devoted to the Lord. That was our, our, our life. And, and over the past 20 years to, to consider and think about how far we've come. And not that we're that far along, but distance is measured by starting point, right? And we started way, way back. And so I'm, I'm kind of sharing with Rocky all these things. And Rocky like started to realize like what, all the things that God's done for our family. And he, I saw him, he had this like moment and he looked at me and he goes, dad, he goes, you have like zero education. I go, you don't have to make me sound stupid, <laughs> you know? but it's true. It's resurrection power. It's God doing things behind the curtains in a way that you can't understand, interpret, or even recognize until long after it happened. Would you say, oh my gosh, Lord, you're so good and you're so powerful and so present in my life and you have done better for me than I could ever do for myself. That's what he does in the life of those that are devoted to him. His power outperforms our best effort. And then fourthly, when living in devotion to him, his potential exceeds our achievement. His potential exceeds our maximum achievement. Notice in verse 11 again what Paul says to the Philippian church. He says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect or complete, but I follow after if that, by, if that I may apprehend or arrive at that for which I also am called of Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not count myself to have arrived, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God. Listen, here is the reality of those that walk in devotion to God is that no matter how far you go, there is always further to go. No matter how much you achieve or obtain, there is always more to grow in. And here's the reality of humanity, is that we are made in the image of God. God is infinite, and your soul is infinite. 
And you have the ability to infinitely grow and experience God in ways that will never, ever come to completion. We never arrive. We are always pursuing. And as long as we are pursuing, we are growing. We're getting richer in the things of him. It's what happens. In the world, your best efforts are going to bring you to a ceiling. You're going to get as far as you can go in your effort, in your chase, in the thing that you want. You're going to hit every goal, and then you're going to come to the end of it and hit a ceiling that's going to nag you because internally you know that you were made for more and there's nothing else to have. That's why Alexander the Great committed suicide at age 33 because there was nothing left to conquer. He had reached the top. He knew there was more, but there was nothing else for him to obtain. Because our greatest achievement is nothing compared to what he has. And when you're in devotion to him, you continually discover more of him, more that's in you, more of his calling, and there's no end to it. You guys ever been to a, a ski resort? How many skiers or snowboarders here? And, uh, you know, okay, not as many as I would think, okay? But for those of you that do, you ever been on the ski lift and you're up on the ski lift and you see that one dude who's skiing uphill? You know what I'm talking about? He's like there and he's going like, duh, duh. And I know someone, I, Justin, you're here. Someone like, yeah, they're skins and they're cool. And, you know, they grip the snow so that you go up but you can't come back down. And it's, an, it's a workout and the whole thing. <laughs> There's a ski lift. You can get on a chair and it's going to bring you to the top. And then gravity brings you back down. And you could do it all day, like 50 times. And you go home because you want to, not because you have to, because you're exhausted. And sometimes I feel like that in life. I feel like there's people that are just stubbornly in this place where they're like, no, I'm going to be a self-made person and I'm going to achieve and advance and I'm going to be able to boast and brag. And I'm going to say that these hands pick myself up by these bootstraps. Listen, you're going to get somewhere and you're going to stop because there's nowhere else to go. But when you say, no, Lord, not, not what I can do, but Lord, that for which you've called me to, to glorify God and to enjoy him, how long? Forever. It's never supposed to stop. Get in the flow of his power and his plan. Get on the ski lift and stop trying to do it in your own effort. Finally, number five, is that a life devoted to God is the highest place that you can arrive. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. Watch the words. He said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It is the highest life that you can live to live in devotion to Christ. The high calling of God is to be in fellowship and communion with him. You ever read in the Old Testament and, and you read about the kings and it says all the good things that they did, but then it'll say, but they still sacrificed in the high places. You guys seen that before? Yeah, anybody else ever wonder like what that means? You know, you're like, like they did everything right in the, in the sight of the Lord, except they still offered in the high places. And it's kind of like this asterisk. He had the home run record, but he took steroids. You know, it's like that. You know, he was the richest man in the world, but he killed 50 people to make it happen. You know, he did everything right in the eyes of the Lord, but he still sacrificed in the high places. And it's almost like, God, why did you put that little asterisk next to their name? And here's the reason. Here's what it means, first of all. To worship in the high places in the Old Testament meant that they were devoted, because that's what the offerings were. They were devotions. They were devoted to the highest things that earth could offer. They weren't bad things. They were the highest things that earth could offer. 
but they were devoted to those high things and not perfectly devoted to God. And to God, it wasn't an issue of shame or anger. It was an issue of a frustrated father looking at his kids and saying, you are eating beans when you could be eating at Texas de Brazil. <laughs> you are settling for high things on this earth when you can have the riches of what it is to be in fellowship with me. You are sharing space within your heart with things that cannot satisfy at a cost of not experiencing that which is truly life. Like God would say to Jeremiah, and he said, my people have committed two evils against me. He says that they have hewn them out cisterns, wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water, and they have abandoned and forsaken me. In other words, you are choosing that which this earth can provide at the expense of having what God wants to give. And Paul says, I am not going to let that be said of my life. I am going to pursue him to the highest calling of what it means to walk with him. I want to know him. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be devoted to him. And to be devoted to anything else, to be devoted to your possessions, to be devoted to a goal that you want to obtain in the world, to be devoted to a situation that you're in that you don't want to let go of, to be devoted to a relationship that you have or hope to have, to be devoted to a hobby or an enjoyment or a recreation activity, to be devoted to some sin or something that, that has a hold in you, that you love, but you know it's destroying you in the inside. To be devoted to anything other than God is to live way short of the chief end of man, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And thus, Paul says that in light of these things, in light of what it means to live a life that is completely devoted to God, he says in verse 15, it's the closing verse of our text, he says, let us therefore, in light of all of this, as many as be perfect, and by perfect, he just means you have your head on straight. <laughs> as many of us as have our head on straight, he says, let us be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Paul says, this is the chief end of man. This is why you exist. This is what you were created for. You were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is your purpose. And that purpose is realized in the place where your life is completely consecrated and completely devoted to nothing other than him, his person, his presence, his power, his fellowship, his goodness in your life, his plan and his path, where purpose informs function. And there is nothing else to live for. And Paul says that let us who have our head on straight change our minds to come back into, or maybe to come into for the very first time, the realization that this is why I was made, and this is what I'm hungry for, and this is where life is going to be found. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out, which we will look at as we get into the studies in future weeks, the difference that was evident in the life of those that had received the, the Spirit of Christ within them was so powerful that the onlookers, seeing the drastic change and sensing the power of the Lord's presence in these people, they looked at Peter and they said, men and brethren, what must we do? In other words, the outsiders knew that these people found it 
And they said, what do we need to do? And Peter's reply was this. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He says, Peter said to them, repent. Do you know what repent means? Turn, but it means to change your mind. That's what Paul is saying. He says, let us who are perfect be thus minded. He says, let us change our mind. He said, repent and be baptized. Turn your mind towards God. Baptism means full devotion. My life being drowned completely in him. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, watch this, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What Paul is calling us into here is a life of full devotion to God. He's able to testify of it as one who went from something to another thing and then lived it out. And he's able to testify to you and I here tonight and say there is no other purpose under heaven than that we should glorify God and enjoy him forever, that our lives be completely devoted to him. If you're here tonight and your devotion has shifted, if he has a part of your heart but not all of it, if he has a piece of what you are but he doesn't possess you fully, Paul is calling you to change your mind and to say, Lord, I have been trading what could be for what cannot last. And right now, Lord, reveal to me even those places within me that I might be completely and fully devoted to you. Lord, I repent of my half-hearted, partial, or lackluster devotion, and I want to live completely devoted to you. If you have never given your life to Jesus and received his gift of salvation, then tonight he calls you for the very first time into that life of devotion to say, no longer is it I, but Christ that I cannot and I am insufficient in and of myself to produce anything in and of myself. But I believe, Lord, that I was made for the purpose of glorifying you and enjoying you forever. And whatever that means in the context of my life, I want to begin now. And if you will repent, change your mind from wherever it's aimed and turn it towards him and say, yes, Lord, put me in this path then the process will begin in you. The same process he took Paul through, the same process that we'll see played out before us as we go through his life, the same end that Paul came to will be the end that you come to because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My prayer is that as we go through this, that God would continually pull our hearts more towards him. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your ways. We thank you for these truths. And we do ask, Lord, as we consider, as we ponder, as we reflect, as we let the light of your word and your spirit and your truth search us, we ask tonight, Lord, that you would fulfill your will in having us here. You brought each one of us into this room tonight to hear something. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would get to the very bottom, the very core, that you would bring such a conviction, such a faith, such a hope that you're able to do exceeding abundantly above what we could ask or think. And we want to thank you for Jesus, the captain of our salvation, the one who was made perfect in sufferings, who for the joy that was set before him endured the suffering of death, but that he might see us walk in the purpose for which we've been created. So do it in us now, God. 
Open our hearts. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Bring us again to the place where we're completely committed to you. And help us, Lord. Teach us to walk in your ways. We're going to sing this song, and I just feel that if, if you, for any reason, just feel like you need to say, Lord, I want to be again at your altar. I open the altar. As we sing the song, if you want to just come and spend your moment and just say, God, set things right. Work in me again what's right. If it's for the first time and you just want to say yes to Jesus, open your heart and say, save me. You, the same, you just come. But let's let the God work in our hearts and pull us towards him. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.